Do you guys normally wait for me? <laughs> you look great. Hey, y'all, if you guys don't know this, um, you can have a seat. Um, our worship team is awesome. They, uh, yeah, do that. Do a bunch of that. Um, they, uh, throughout the week, um, pick songs, learn songs. They show up here. What time do you guys show up here, typically? <laughs> no. 4.30. So they show up here at 4.30, so it's a six-hour night for them um, every week, and they, they volunteer to do it for free um, just to be here and lead us in worship. So um, anyway, I'm really thankful for y'all. Thank you. Um, let's pray. Pray with me, please. Oh, Father, uh, tonight, I know I am out of my depth. I know that what I'm talking about tonight, God, you know this better than I. Um, I don't know how to wrap my mind around some of what I am sharing tonight, some of what I believe you're calling me to share here. And yet it's truth, and what else can I proclaim? I pray that your spirit would be at work in this room uh, helping all of us to believe and to know your son, Jesus. And I'm mindful, God, that it is well. It is so much more well than most of us would ever even imagine because of Jesus. He is not far from any one of us. For your glory and our good, I ask for your anointing over this night. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, uh, Daniel, would you put up that first slide for me? Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And who is the father who sent his son into the world? And who is the comforter who is sent by the father at the request of the son to lead the church into all truth? The early church concluded that the answer to all three of these questions must be God. M must be God. Who is Jesus? Who is the Father? And who is this comforter? The answer to all of these questions must be God without qualification. Daniel, you can just leave slides up until we go to the next. That'd be great. Around the year uh, 200, right around the year 200, um, there was a word, a Latin word, that began to take shape and, and begin to gain traction in the Christian world, and it was the word Trinitas, Trinity. It began to be used to, be, to define the Christian understanding of God in the empire. This crazy new word to define the paradoxical claims that had come from the mouth of Jesus and were coming from the mouth of all of his followers. Trinity. This Christian understanding of God that the disciples of the disciples came up with. Who is God? Who is God, Christian? And they reply, he is triune, three in one. <laughs> I don't know what you've heard, but they weren't making up definitions. The word Trinity doesn't show up in the Bible, but what happened is, is everybody else in the world was were trying to simplify what Jesus had said. They wanted people to meet Jesus and everyone kept trying to reduce and explain him away. 
And they kept wanting to simplify what they knew of him. All of them, the early church fathers kept saying, no, no, we must not do that. Jesus said the Father sent the Son into the world. He spoke of the Holy Spirit. He spoke of his own identity. And because of his life and work and resurrection, his followers were wrestling with the implications of what he said. And so you can probably imagine when you think of um, the word Trinity in, in the early church, what I would, I would love for you to imagine these people standing there against the tide of the world going, no, we will protect this space. Here is the Christ, our Lord and God. And, and he said these things and you keep wanting to say this and we're gonna keep that out and we're not defining a new thing called Trinity. We're actually putting up these things to keep other heresies out. This is what Jesus said, and I know we, can't, we don't know what to do with this sometimes, but we can't reduce it if we're going to trust him. Which of the sentences of his are we going to take away to make this work? No, we will protect this space right here. And so they were left with three basic claims about God that they would not let anybody intrude upon. And would you put those, those three things up? There, God is three persons. Each person that Jesus spoke of is fully God and there is one God. Any two of these would be so much easier to explain than three. One is hard. Two, very, very difficult. Three, impossible. But Jesus. And so the early church was like, we gotta, I, I know we want to reduce this. Just, we, we have to stick with what Jesus said. The Israelites knew, you can just leave that up. The Israelites knew that, that um, that there was only one God. This is the supreme teaching in all of Judaism. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. From Deuteronomy chapter six, they got it in the desert and this every single little Israelite child would have known. The Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This set them apart. It was a distinction for the Israelite people. The rest of the world had creation myths and stories of gods that had multiple gods vying for power. And the creation myths were often, the, the creation of the earth and humanity and the stars were explained by violence or sex between multiple gods fighting, inbreeding, jealousy, all these things going on. But the Hebrew God, Yahweh, says, I'm one. There's no other God before me. And I didn't create because I was tired and I needed somebody to work for me. And, and it didn't come out of fighting. There was no body that was ripped apart and humans came out of that or something. I created out of love. This was crazy in the ancient world. But oh Israel, God is one. Whatever else we say about God, whatever else we say about him, we have to say that he is one. We have to. We can never say that he is not one. God is one, which is why it's so crazy when Jesus says something like, I and the Father are one. When he does this, the Jews around him, knowing that there's only one God, picked up stones and, and got ready to throw it at him. And Jesus stops and he says, for which work, <laughs> like which thing did I do that is causing you to want to throw stones at me. And they said, it's not because of any work that you did, it's because you being a man made yourself out to be God. That happened twice. He declared himself to be God or one with God. The Jews raised stones to throw at him and he slips out the back door. 
Jesus also goes on to speak of the Holy Spirit as a person, not a thing, not a power, not a force, but as a person, a masculine he, as a matter of fact. And he speaks of him and says he will be sent by God, not it will be sent, he will be sent by God. And that the Spirit should be worshiped together with him and the Father as God. So the early church wrestling with what Jesus said were trying to answer these questions. Who is Jesus? Who is the Father sent by him and who is the Spirit who's being commissioned by him and sent by God? And they respond in the only way they can. God must be a unity of Father, Son, and Spirit. God is triune. And so it really leaves us with something like this. Would you put that triangle thing up? Hmm. Okay. Uh, I'm gonna explain this. Um, so Father, there's one God. And on the outside, you've got Father, Son, and Spirit, and you've got the word is not around there because the Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Father. There are distinctions there. Absolutely there are if you look at the life of Jesus. You cannot say that the Father and Son are the same thing, except both of them are God. The Spirit, too. And so you've got one God with three persons, all, and all three persons have the same nature. They're God. And right now we are approaching, if we haven't hit it, the limit of our understanding. I think rather quickly. <laughs> All of this up here, I affirm. I have read what Jesus had to say. I affirm that what he said is that I trust him. I believe that this stuff is true. But brothers and sisters, there is a ton of mystery left in this. There isn't a person in this room that goes, sweet, got it. Totally got it. Don't need to ask any more questions. I don't think that's a fault in our understanding of God. I don't think it's a fault in our descriptions of this. Why do we think that the point of coming up with a paragraph or a diagram about God is to have something that perfectly articulates him? Most of you have never met my wife. Her name's Anna. Um, how many pages do you think it would take me? Like how many would I have to write, normal pages, before I could perfectly communicate who she is. 10? 100? If I wrote 10,000 pages and I called her up and I said, hey, Anna, I love you so much. I was really humble. I didn't say anything negative. I kept that for a volume two or something. But like, but I, I wrote this huge thing. It's 10,000 pages about you. And I think I got it perfect. There's a period at the very end. Is there any chance that she's ever going to think, I bet you there's nothing left? How, I mean, really, how many pages would I need to communicate Anna in a diagram? Like, what kind of, how, how big of a screen would I need to perfectly diagram my wife so that you knew her? So there was no mystery left. I think it's impossible. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think I could ever, with all of the page, I could continue to write the rest of my life and I would never be done. Discovering, knowing, it would never be static because she's a person, she's not actually a diagram. But that doesn't mean I, I can't tell you anything about her, it doesn't mean you can't know anything about her. My wife is adorable and, and she's five foot one and she has green eyes and, and, and if I said this and one of you who doesn't know her went, okay, wait, stop, stop, stop. So she's adorable, okay. And five, five one, and, and green eyes. Okay, is that it? And I said, well, well, no, she's probably the most competitive person I've ever met, and she's super stubborn, 
And they, that person went, okay, well, okay, competitive and st stubborn. Like pretty quickly, we're both going to realize that something totally different is going on between the two of us. Because I, like I'm not thinking that by me telling you about her, that she's reducible. I'm not thinking that by me telling you descriptions about her and things that are actually true, that you can write down some notes on a piece of paper and be done. You, writing down all your notes, are thinking that, you can, that she's manageable or something. And I promise you, um, she's a woman and you can't manage a woman. Um, she is handcrafted by God and you will never box her in or simplify the absolute wonder that she is. If I'm telling you about her, it's so you'll want to meet her. Or so that when you do meet her, you'll recognize her. Like the things I tell you about her, you should be able to see her and go, totally. That's pretty much what I thought 5-1 was like, I guess. I thought green looked like green and, you know, competitive. I had to sort of see sort of what that looked like in this particular instance, but I get that. And, you know, as I continue to explain her, you should recognize her. And I can tell you all sorts of things that will be true. But you actually, no matter how many things I tell you, and quite frankly, the more I tell you about my wife, the harder it's going to be for you to know who she is without meeting her sometimes. Because you're going to have to figure out, how do I reconcile all of this disparate information? How do I piece all of these things together? And then you meet Anna and you go, oh, yeah, like that. Because it, 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 she didn't start under a mold. She didn't have like this pattern that she was created under. I know her. And because I know her, I can tell you things about her. And those things belong to her. They don't belong to a diagram or something else. All of these truths need to be reconciled in her, and they will only make sense when you meet her. Until then, they're abstract. Helpful, maybe. But maybe really helpful, but they're abstract still. They're not her. And they're impersonal. And I think we will struggle with this same sort of thing when we talk about God. When we talk about him in abstractions and diagrams, it will never satisfy us. Recently, I told a friend of mine that there's a girl I really want him to meet. He doesn't know this girl. Um, and you can imagine he has a ton of questions, like a ton of questions. How many questions would I have to answer before he's satisfied? He never will be satisfied until he meets her. That's obvious, right? I mean, all of us would know that. Like, if, if, I, if I told him, oh, she's like this, she's like this, she's like this, here's her name. Here's her. Honestly, what he needs to do more than anything else is just meet her. This is normal relationship stuff. Like, now I'm not saying anything that's super profound. We get this in our interpersonal relationships. And when we talk about, when I go back to the Trinity for a second, when we look at something like this, we need to understand that this guards truth and it can guide us into truth, but we should never mistake it for the full understanding of truth. You should be hesitant if somebody says, oh, I can explain Jesus in three sentences or a book or an, in an argument or watching an hour YouTube video. That shouldn't be a struggle if Jesus is an idea. That wouldn't be a struggle at all. If Jesus is an abstraction, that should be relatively easy. We just need a smart person to give us the right argument, but he's a person. God is three persons, so how much harder is that going to be? If you take this diagram and arguments about the triune nature of God to heart, does that mean you know God? 
So he's one three-personed God. I got it. <laughs> Whatever. That's not what we need to know. We need to know him. Not simply about him. Uh, you put up the first half of that other quote for me. I want you guys to think about this for a second. Uh, not this one. The, um, yeah, that one. Thanks. Suppose we saw the heavens open like Jacob in his dream. And suppose there were a ladder up to heaven and that we were able to climb that ladder into heaven itself so that we were at last able to see God face to face. Whom should we find there? I would love for you to actually try to imagine that for a minute. Imagine you standing before the throne of God, seeing him face to face. What do you expect to see? Who do you expect to see? What does his voice sound like? Is it a he? Is he a he? Do you know him? What do you expect to find when you come face to face with God? I can tell you you're not going to find an argument or a triangle with a bunch of words sitting on a throne or a list of sentences or a book. Who will you see? The vision of God. <laughs> I mean, this is what most of, this is what we all want. I guess whether you know it or not, you want this. Show us your face, God. Stop hiding. Come down and just make yourself known. Reveal yourself. I have this sense that before your face, all my questions would die away. So just come on out. And I think that would be enough. I ask these questions, you ask these questions, please God, show yourself. This, I think, is the longing of our hearts. In order that we might know God and, and through him, know ourselves. Because if you haven't discovered this yet about yourself, you need to know who you are by how you define things outside of yourself. You cannot know yourself in a vacuum. And until you, you actually, your understanding of self is entirely right now operating out of your working view of God for every single one of us in this room. And we need to know him in order to even know ourselves. Philip, one of Jesus' closest friends, longed for the same thing. Jesus had just told his friends that he was leaving and he was going to be with the Father. One God. I don't know. And in the midst of their panic about leaving, Philip asks a question that I think any of us would ask. Would you put that, that one up? Philip said, Lord, show us the Father. Show us the Father and it will be enough. It will, I, I promise, Jesus, it will be enough if you just show us the Father. And wouldn't that be enough for us too? Jesus, come on. Just reveal God. That's what we want. Suppose we climbed a ladder into heaven and were at last able to see God face to face, whom would we find? I think Jesus' response to Philip is in one sense obvious, it's also sober, it's also surprising. We just put that one up to you now, if that's okay, that's the other uh, Bible passage, it, it just extends this one. Show us the Father and it will be enough for us. And Jesus said, have I been with you so long? Show us the Father, Jesus. And he goes, have I been with you so long that you still don't know me? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. When you, Philip, climb that ladder and stare face to face with God, you will see me 
Philip, I'm going to be with the Father, and you're asking to see the Father, and I'm telling you, you've seen him. We cry, God, come out of hiding, step down, make yourself known, and friends, he has. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. John says that Jesus actually made God known to us. Out of his own mouth, he says, he and the Father are one. If you want to know what God looks like, he says, have I, have I been with you so long and you still don't know me? The quote I used earlier ends like this. If you put the longer version up, this is a guy named uh, Jürgen Moltmann, if you're interested. Um, he says, suppose that we saw the heavens open. I've had the questions before. Whom should we find there? We should find the baby lying in the manger. We should find ourselves standing before the man on the cross. There is God. And whoever wants to find him must look for him in the fellowship of Jesus Christ. What do you think you're going to see? When you meet God face to face, who do you think you'll see? We will see no other. We will see Jesus. When you wonder what God is like, you don't have to guess. When you wonder what he thinks of you, you don't have to guess. When you wonder how he'll respond to you and the decisions that you make, the personality traits that you have, the fights that you fight, you don't have to guess. You may not believe that Jesus is God, but you don't have to guess. Look at Jesus. You don't need to wonder or worry or have doubt about who God is. I know you will have all those things like I do. And we're told to cast our doubts, cast our anxieties upon Jesus. Not specifically because he is the one we're seeking. And when we begin to cast our doubts upon him, even as I suspect that some of us are still looking for another God, even as I cast my doubts upon him, I go, whoa, you were the one I was seeking in the first place. We don't cast our doubts upon him because he is, or our anxieties upon him because he is faithful to point us to the real God that we seek. Jesus isn't the way to another God. He is the God that we seek. There is great mystery in all this. Jesus, speaking of the Father and speaking of the Spirit, saying that he's one, saying that they're equal, there is great mystery here. And in our, day, in our day and age today, when we talk of mystery, quite often the natural connotation is ignorance, that we either have mystery or certainty. This was not true for the early church. When something was mysterious to them, it was an invitation. That's what it was. It makes me think that the moment this clicked for me is a strange moment was when I watched a movie called The Matrix. When I was in college, that was a big movie. Um, and there's this scene at the beginning that was absolutely crazy. Like all, everybody I went to the movie with, like all my college friends, we were all like, what? Like it was crazy. At the beginning of this scene, this girl like does a bunch of weird Kung Fu stuff that was kind of crazy. But, but the craziest part is she walks out of the door of this building and she looks at this telephone booth like 20 yards away. And then she looks across the street and there's this gigantic garbage truck, like huge dump truck thing that's like revving its engine and spinning tires or I don't know how you do this both at the same time. Anyway, whatever, all that stuff. And like getting ready to run into this telephone booth and you're like, oh, okay, well, she's not gonna go into the telephone booth because apparently there's a garbage truck running into it. And she beelines for the telephone booth. 
And she runs right into this telephone booth, opens it up, picks up the phone, puts her hand on the window as the truck slams into it. And, and for all intents and purposes, she must have died. Like you're watching this thing, you don't know what's happening. But like, I mean, I just saw her do like kung fu and slow-mo, but that's the thing that didn't make sense to me. It's a gigantic truck that's about to run into that telephone booth. Anywhere else would be better. But the thing is, I, can, I mean, can you imagine like what would have happened if all of a sudden I went, you know what? I don't understand what's going on. So I'll see you guys later. And I walked out of the movie theater. Like I didn't, I didn't because the way it had been done so far and what I had seen of the previews and the music and the acting and everything made me trust it. And I trusted that if I just stick with this, if I go through the rabbit hole <laughs> or the telephone line, if I go through this and I follow it to its end, I know that I will know. I know that I'll find this stuff out. And it's a silly moment for me to realize this, but it clicked in my head that I went, oh my gosh, some mystery is really confounding and frustrating. But some mystery is just a huge invitation. Because every guy I sat with in that theater at that moment went, I cannot wait to see how this is resolved. Like that didn't make us frustrated. That made us all want to do this again. And we were actually so mad that we couldn't go back and watch it over again. Because we loved the adventure that came with that mystery. And I submit to you, brothers and sisters, that the early church thought of the Trinity like that. When they explained God, they said, here is this, here we want to find Jesus and there is mystery here and it's beckoning us to go in. It's a benediction that we, we talk about a lot here that God can do immeasurably more than we could ever ask or imagine, far more than we could ever ask or imagine. Which for some of us, we hear something like that and we go, then we just shouldn't imagine it. If he can do more than we could ask for and we can't ever imagine it, then we guess we shouldn't ask and I guess we shouldn't imagine. And the early church said, well, that means we can just dive in and we're never gonna hit the bottom. This is a mystery that's beckoning us and calling us. And I ask you, Christians, have you been with him so long and you still might not know him? The mystery is great in Jesus proclaiming himself to be God. It is so great. But in him is the life and light of all mankind. He would say to all of our doubts and with all of our hesitancies and with all of our problems, this is what Jesus says. If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. So if you wanna know God, our mission is to fix Jesus before our mind and our heart. Let me, let me pray for us. Father, right now, I know um, your scriptures even say, you're, one of your best friends, John, says that we don't see you clearly. I know that we don't. And we won't until Jesus comes again. And I know that's why we struggle with our own identity as well. But Father, we need him. We need to see him. We need to see you. We need to see him fixed before our minds and hearts as the Lord of Lord and King of Kings and God of very God. We need your spirit to help us believe. Father, there is no question that is greater for us to ask than who you are. And your son has come down 
poured himself out and humbled himself even to the point of death on a cross that we might actually know your heart, know your mind, know what you like, know what you say. Forbid us from saying that we don't know God when you have made him known. Would you teach us in the next couple of minutes even to worship your son as God? Thank you, Father, for your humility. Thank you for not leaving us in the dark. It is in Jesus' name I pray, amen.